0: section three of over prairie trails by frederick philip grove this librivox recording is in the public domain read by bruce peary fog peter took me north alone on six successive trips we had rain we had snow we had mud and hard frozen ground it took us four it took us six it took us on one occasion after a heavy october snowfall nearly eleven hours to make the trip that last adventure decided me it was unavoidable that i should buy a second horse the roads were getting too heavy for single driving over such a distance this time i wanted a horse that i could sell in the spring to a farmer for any kind of work on the land i looked around for a while then i found dan he was a sorrel with some clyde blood in him he looked a veritable skate of a horse you could lay your fingers between his ribs and he played out on the first trip i ever made with this newly assembled strange-looking team but when i look back at that winter i cannot but say that again i chose well after i had fed him up he did the work in a thoroughly satisfactory manner and he learnt to know the road far better than peter several times i should have been lost without his unerring road sense in the spring i sold him for exactly what i had paid the farmer who bought him has him to this very day and says he never had a better horse I also had found that on moonless nights it was indispensable for me to have lights along. Now maybe the reader has already noticed that I am rather a thorough-going person. For a week I worked every day, after four, at my buggy, and finally had a blacksmith put on the finishing touches. What I rigged up was as follows. On the front springs I fastened with clamps two upright iron supports. Between them with thumb screws the searchlight of a wrecked steam tractor, which I got for a thank you from a junk pile Into the buggy box I laid a borrowed acetylene gas tank strapped down with two bands of galvanized tin I made the connection by a stout rubber tube guaranteed not to harden in the severest weather To the side of the box I attached a short piece of band-iron, bent at an angle, so that a bicycle lamp could be slipped over it. Against the case that I should need a hand-light, I carried, besides, a so-called dashboard coal-oil lantern with me. With all lamps going, it must have been a strange outfit to look at from a distance in the dark i traveled by this time in fur coat and cap and i carried a robe for myself and blankets for the horses for i now fed them on the road soon after crossing the creek now on the second friday of november there had been a smell of smoke in the air from the early morning the marsh up north was afire as it had been off and on for a matter of twenty-odd years the fire consumes on the surface everything that will burn the ground cools down a new vegetation springs up and nobody would suspect as there is nothing to indicate that only a few feet below the heat lingers ready to leap up again if given the opportunity in this case i was told that a man had started to dig a well on a newly filed claim and that suddenly he found himself wrapped about in smoke and flames i cannot vouch for the truth of this but i can vouch for the fact that the smoke of the fire was smelt for forty miles north and that in the afternoon a combination of this smoke probably furnishing condensation nuclei and of the moisture in the air somewhere along or above the lake brought about the densest fog i had ever seen on the prairies how it spread I shall discuss later on. To give an idea of its density, I will mention right here that on the well-travelled road between two important towns, a man abandoned his car, during the early part of the night, because he lost his nerve when his lights could no longer penetrate the fog sufficiently to reach the road. I was warned at noon—'You surely do not intend to go out to-night.' remarked a lawyer acquaintance to me at the dinner-table in the hotel for by telephone from lake points reports of the fog had already reached the town i intend to leave word at the stable right now i replied to have team and buggy in front of the school at four o'clock well said the lawyer in getting up i would not you'll run into fog and into fog i did run At this time of the year I had at best only a little over an hour's start in my race against darkness. I always drove my horses hard now while daylight lasted. I demanded from them their very best strength at the start. Then, till we reached the last clear road over the dam, I spared them as much as I could. I had met up with a few things in the dark by now, and I had learned if a difficulty arose how much easier it is to cope with it even in failing twilight than by the gleam of lantern or headlight, for the latter never illumine more than a limited spot. So I had turned Bell's corner by the time I hit the fog. I saw it in front and to the right it drew a slanting line across the road there it stood like a wall not a breath seemed to be stirring the fog from a distance appeared to rise like a cliff quite smoothly and it blotted out the world beyond when i approached it i saw that its face was not so smooth as it had appeared from half a mile back nor was it motionless in fact it was rolling south and west like a wave of great viscosity though my senses failed to perceive the slightest breath of a breeze the fog was brewing and whirling and huge spheres seemed to be forming in it and to roll forward slowly and sometimes to recede as if they had encountered an obstacle and rebounded clumsily i had seen a tidal wave fifty or more feet high sweep up the bore of a river at the head of the bay of fundy i was reminded of the sight but here everything seemed to proceed in a strangely weirdly leisurely way there was none of that rush of that hurry about this fog that characterizes water besides there seemed to be no end to the wave above it reached up as far as your eye could see now bulging in now out but always advancing it was not so slow however as for the moment i judged it to be for i was later on told that it reached the town at about six o'clock and here i was at five six and a half miles from its limits as the crow flies i had hardly time to take in the details that i have described before i was enveloped in the folds of the fog i mean this quite literally for i am firmly convinced that an onlooker from behind would have seen the gray masses fold in like a sheet when i drove against them it must have looked as if a driver were driving against a canvas moving in a slight breeze canvas light and loose enough to be held in place by the resistance of the air so as to enclose him or maybe i should say veiling instead of canvas or something still lighter and airier have you ever seen milk poured carefully down the side of a glass vessel filled with water well clear air and fog seemed to behave towards each other pretty much the same way as milk in that case behaves towards water i am rather emphatic about this because i have made a study of just such mists on a very much smaller scale in that northern country where my wife taught her school and where i was to live for nearly two years as a convalescent The hollows of the ground on clear, cold summer nights, when the mercury dipped down close to the freezing-point, would sometimes fill with a white mist of extraordinary density. Occasionally this mist would go on forming, in higher and higher layers of condensation. Mostly however, it seemed rather to come from below. But always, when it was really dense, There was a definite plane of demarcation. In fact, that was the criterion by which I recognized this peculiar mist. Mostly there is, even in the north, a layer of lesser density over the pools, gradually shading off into the clear air above. Nothing of what I am going to describe can be observed in that case. One summer, when I was living not over two miles from the lake shore, I used to go down to these pools whenever they formed in the right way, and when I approached them, slowly and carefully, I could dip my hand into the mist as into water, and I could feel the coolness of the misty layers. It was not because my hand got moist, for it did not. No evaporation was going on there, nor any condensation either nor did noticeable bubbles form because there was no motion in the mass which might have caused the infinitesimal droplets to collide and to coalesce into something perceivable to my senses once of a full moon night i spent an hour getting into a pool like that and when i looked down at my feet i could not see them but after i had been standing in it for a while ten minutes maybe a clear space had formed around my body and i could see the ground the heat of my body helped the air to redissolve the mist into steam and as i watched i noticed that a current was set up the mist was continually flowing in towards my feet and legs where the body heat was least and where evaporation proceeded fastest, that is at the height of my waist, little wisps of mist would detach themselves from the side of the funnel of clear air in which I stood, and they would, in a slow graceful motion, accelerated somewhat towards the last, describe a downward and inward curve towards the lower part of my body before they dissolved. I thought of that elusive and yet clearly defined layer of mist that forms in the plane of contact between the cold air flowing from Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and the ambient air of a sultry summer day. Footnote: See Burroughs' wonderful description of this phenomenon in Riverby End of footnote. On another of the rare occasions, when the mists had formed in the necessary density, I went out again, put a stone in my pocket, and took a dog along. I approached a shallow mist pool with the greatest caution. The dog crouched low, apparently thinking that I was stalking some game. Then when I had arrived within about ten or fifteen yards from the edge of the pool, I took the stone from my pocket, showed it to the dog, and threw it, across the pool, as fast and as far as I could. The dog dashed in and tore through the sheet. Where the impact of his body came, the mist bulged in, then broke. For a while there were two sheets, separated by a more or less clearly defined, vertical layer of transparency, or maybe blackness, rather. The two sheets were in violent commotion, approaching, impinging upon each other, swinging back again to complete separation, and so on. But the violence of the motion consisted by no means in speed. It suggested a very much retarded rolling off of a motion-picture reel. There was at first an element of disillusion in the impression. I felt tempted to shout and to spur the mist into greater activity on the surface to both sides of the tear, waves ran out and at the edges of the pool they rose in that same leisurely stately way which struck me as one of the most characteristic features of that november mist and at last it seemed as if they reared and reached up very slowly as a dying man may stand up once more before he falls And only after an interval that seemed unconscionably long, to me, the whole pool settled back to comparative smoothness, though without its definite plane of demarcation now. Strange to say, the dog had actually started something—a rabbit, maybe, or a jumping deer—and did not return. When fogs spread as a rule they do so in air already saturated with moisture what really spreads is the cold air which by mixing with and thereby cooling the warmer moisture-laden atmosphere causes the condensation that is why our fall mists mostly are formed in an exceedingly slight but still noticeable breeze but in the case of these northern mist pools whenever the conditions are favorable for their formation the moisture of the upper air seems to be pretty well condensed as dew it is only in the hollows of the ground that it remains suspended in this curious way i cannot so far say whether it is due to the fact that where radiation is largely thrown back upon the walls of the hollow the fall in temperature at first is very much slower than in the open thus enabling the moisture to remain in suspension or whether the hollows serve as collecting reservoirs for the cold air from the surrounding territory the air carrying the already condensed moisture with it or whether lastly it is simply due to a greater saturation of the atmosphere in these cavities consequent upon the greater approach of their bottom to the level of the ground water i have seen a waterfall of this mist overflow from a dent in the edge of ground that contained a pool that seems to argue for an origin similar to that of a spring as if strongly moisture-laden air welled up from underground condensing its steam as it got chilled it is these strange phenomena that are familiar too in the northern plains of europe which must have given rise to the belief in elves and other weird creations of the brain the earth has bubbles as the water has not half as weird though as some realities are in the land which i love now this great memorable fog of that november friday shared the nature of the mist pools of the north inasmuch as to a certain extent it refused to mingle with the drier and slightly warmer air into which it traveled it was different from them inasmuch as it fairly dripped and oozed with very palpable wetness just how it displaced the air in its path is something which i cannot with certainty say was it formed as a low layer somewhere over the lake and slowly pushed along by a gentle imperceptible fan-shaped current of air fan-shaped i say for as we shall see it travelled simultaneously south and north and i must infer that in exactly the same way it travelled west or was it formed originally like a tremendous column which flattened out by-and-by through its own gravity slowly displacing the lighter air in the lower strata i do not know but i am inclined to accept the latter explanation i do know that it traveled at the rate of about six miles an hour and its coming was observed somewhat in detail by two other observers besides myself two people who lived twenty-five miles apart one to the north one to the south of where i hit it neither one was as much interested in things meteorological as i am but both were struck by the unusual density of the fog and while one saw it coming from the north the other one saw it approaching from the south i have no doubt that at last it began to mingle with the clearer air and to thin out in fact i have good testimony to that effect and early next morning it was blown by a wind like an ordinary fog-cloud all over portage plains i also know that further north at my home for instance it had the smell of the smoke which could not have proceeded from anywhere but the marsh and the marsh lay to the south of it that seemed to prove that actually the mist was spreading from a common center in at least two directions these points which i gathered later strongly confirmed my own observations which will be set down further on it must then have been formed as a layer of a very considerable height to be able to spread over so many square miles as I said, I was reminded of those mist pools in the north when I approached the cliff of the fog, especially of that waterfall of mist of which I spoke. But besides the difference in composition—the fog, as we shall see, was not homogeneous, this being the cause of its wetness—there was another important point of distinction. For while the mist of the pools is of the whitest white, this fog showed from the outside and in the mass the single wreaths seemed white enough rather the color of that wet unbleached linen of which burroughs speaks in connection with rain-clouds now as soon as i was well engulfed in the fog i had a few surprises i could no longer see the road ahead i could not see the fence along which i had been driving I saw the horses' rumps, but I could not see their heads. I bent forward over the dashboard. I could not even see the ground below. It was a series of negatives. I stopped the horses. I listened, then looked at my watch. The stillness of the grave enveloped me. It was a little past five o'clock. The silence was oppressive the misty impenetrability of the atmosphere was appalling i do not say darkness for as yet it was not really dark i could still see the dial of my watch clearly enough to read the time but darkness was falling fast falling for it seemed to come from above mostly it rises from out of the shadows under the trees advancing fighting back the powers of light above one of the horses i think it was peter coughed it was plain they felt chilly i thought of my lights and started with stiffening fingers to fumble at the valves of my gas tank when reaching into my trousers pockets for matches i was struck with the astonishing degree to which my furs had been soaked in these few minutes as for wetness the fog was like a sponge At last, kneeling in the buggy box, I got things ready. I smelt the gas escaping from the burner of my bicycle lantern and heard it hissing in the headlight. The problem arose of how to light a match. I tried various places without success. Even the seat of my trousers proved disappointing. I got a sizzling and sputtering flame, it is true, but it went out before I could apply it to the gas the water began to drip from the backs of my hands it was no rain because it did not fall it merely floated along but the droplets though smaller were infinitely more numerous than in a rain there were more of them in a given space at last i lifted the seat cushion under which i had a tool box filled with ropes leather straps and all manner of things that i might ever be in need of during my nights in the open there i found a dry spot where to strike the needed match i got the bicycle lantern started it burned quite well and i rather admired it unreasoningly i seemed to have expected that it would not burn in so strange an atmosphere so i carefully rolled a sheet of letter paper into a fairly tight roll working with my back to the fog and under the shelter of my big raccoon coat I took a flame from the bicycle light and sheltered and nursed it along till I thought it would stand the drizzle. Then I turned and thrust the improvised torch into the bulky reflector case of the searchlight. The result was startling. A flame eighteen inches high leaped up with a crackling and hissing sound. The horses bolted and the buggy jumped. I was lucky, for inertia carried me right back on the seat, and as soon as I had the lines in my hands again I felt that the horses did not really mean it. I did not think we had gone more than two or three hundred yards before the team was under control. I stopped and adjusted the overturned valves. When I succeeded I found to my disappointment that the heat of that first flame had partly spoiled the reflector. Still, my range of vision now extended to the belly-band in the horse's harness. The light that used to show me the road for about fifty feet in front of the horse's heads gave a short, truncated cone of great luminosity, which was interesting and looked reassuring, but it failed to reach the ground, for it was so adjusted that the focus of the converging light-rays lay ahead and not below before therefore the point of greatest luminosity was reached the light was completely absorbed by the fog i got out of the buggy went to the horses heads and patted their noses which were dripping with wetness but now that i faced the headlight i could see it though i had failed to see the horses heads when seated behind it this too was quite reassuring for it meant that the horses probably could see the ground even though i did not but where was i i soon found out that we had shot off the trail and to which side i looked at my watch again already the incident had cost me half an hour it was really dark by now even outside the fog for there was no moon I tried out how far I could get away from the buggy without losing sight of the light. It was only a very few steps, not more than a dozen. I tried to visualize where I had been when I struck the fog. And, fortunately, my habit of observing the smallest details, even if only subconsciously, helped me out. I concluded that the horses had bolted straight ahead thus missing an s-shaped curve to the right at this moment i heard peter paw the ground impatiently so i quickly returned to the horses for i did not relish the idea of being left alone there was an air of impatience and nervousness about both of them i took my bicycle lantern and reached for the lines then standing clear of the buggy I turned the horses at right angles to the north as I imagined it to be. When we started I walked alongside the team through dripping underbrush and held the lantern in my free hand close down to the ground. Two or three times I stopped during the next half-hour, trying, since we still did not strike the trail, to reason out a different course i was now wet through and through to my knees and i had repeatedly run into willow clumps which did not tend to make me any drier either at last i became convinced that in bolting the horses must have swerved a little to the south so that in starting up again we had struck a tangent to the big bend north just beyond bell's farm If that was the case, we should have to make another turn to the right in order to strike the road again, for at best we were then simply going parallel to it. The trouble was that I had nothing to tell me the directions, not even a tree, the bark or moss of which might have vouchsafed information. Suddenly I had an inspiration. Yes, the fog was coming from the northeast. So, by observing the drift of the droplets, I could find at least an approximate meridian line. I went to the headlight, and an observation immediately confirmed my conjecture. I was now convinced that I was on that wild land where two months ago I had watched the goldfinches disporting themselves in the evening sun. But so as not to turn back to the south, I struck out at an angle of only about sixty degrees to my former direction. I tried not to swerve, which involved rough going and I had many a stumble. Thus I walked, for another half-hour or thereabout. Then, certainly, this was the road. The horses turned into it of their own accord. That was the most reassuring thing of all. There was one strange doubt left somehow i was not absolutely clear about it whether north might not after all be behind i stopped even a new observation of the fog did not remove the last vestige of a doubt i had to take a chance some landmark might help after a while i believe in getting ready before i start so i took my coal-oil lantern lighted and suspended it under the rear springs of the buggy in such a way that it would throw its light back on the road having the light away down i expected to be able to see at least whether i was on a road or not in this i was only partly successful for on the rut trails nothing showed except the blades of grass and the tops of weeds while on the grades where indeed i could make out the ground i did not need a light for as i found out i could more confidently rely on my ear i got back to my seat and proceeded to make myself as comfortable as i could i took off my shoes and socks keeping well under the robe extracted a pair of heavy woolens from my suitcase under the seat, rubbed my feet dry, and then wrapped up, without putting my shoes on again, as carefully and scientifically as only a man who has had pneumonia and is a chronic sufferer from pleuritis knows how to do. At last I proceeded. After listening again with great care for any sound, i touched the horses with my whip and they fell into a quiet trot it was nearly seven now and i had probably not yet made eight miles we swung along if i was right in my calculations and the horses kept to the road i should strike the twelve-mile bridge in about three-quarters of an hour that was the bridge leading through the cottonwood gate to the grade past the hovel i kept the watch in the mitt of my left hand not for a moment did it occur to me to turn back way up north there was a young woman preparing supper for me the fog might not be there she would expect me i could not disappoint her and then there was the little girl who usually would wake up and in her nighty come out of bed and sleepily smile at me and climb onto my knee and nod off again I thought of them, to be sure, of the hours and hours in wait for them, and a great tenderness came over me, and gratitude, for the belated home they gave an aging man. And slowly my mind reverted to the things at hand. And this is what was the most striking feature about them. I was shut in, closed off from the world around apart from that cone of visibility in front of the headlight and another much smaller one from the bicycle lamp there was not a thing i could see if the road was the right one i was passing now through some square miles of wild land right and left there were poplar thickets and ahead there was that line of stately cottonwoods but no suggestion of a landmark nothing except a cone of light which was filled with fog and cut into on both sides by two steaming and rhythmically moving horse-flanks. It was like a very small room, this space of light, the buggy itself in darkness, forming an alcove to it, in which my hand knew every well-appointed detail. Gradually, while I was warming up, A sense of infinite comfort came, and with it the enjoyment of the elvish aspect. I began to watch the fog. By bending over towards the dashboard and looking into the soon-arrested glare, I could make out the component parts of the fog. It was like the mixture of two immiscible liquids, oil, for instance, shaken up with water a fine impalpable yet very dense mist formed the ground mass but in it there floated myriads of droplets like the droplets of oil in water these droplets would sometimes sparkle in a mild unobtrusive way as they were nearing the light and then they would dash against the pane and keep it dripping dripping down i leaned back again and i watched the whole of the light cone snow-white wisps would float and whirl through it in graceful curves stirred into motion by the horse's trot or a wreath of it would start to dance as if gently pulled or plucked at from above and it would revolve faster towards the end and fade again into the shadows behind i thought of a summer in norland in sweden in the stone and birch waste which forms the timberline where i had also encountered the mist pools and a trip down a stream in the borderland of the finns came back with great vividness into my mind that trip had been made in a fog like this only it had been begun in the early morning and the whole mass of the mist had been suffused with the whitest of lights but strange to say what stood out most strikingly in the fleeting memory of the voyage was the weird and mocking laughter of the magpies all along the banks the finnish woods seemed alive with that mocking laughter and it truly belongs to the land of the mists for a moment i thought that something after all was missing here on the prairies But then I reflected again that this silence of the grave was still more perfect, still more uncanny and ghostly, because it left the imagination entirely free, without limiting it by even as much as a suggestion. No wonder, I thought, that the Northerners in their land of heath and bog were the poets of elves and goblins and of the fear of ghosts shrouds were these fogs hanging and waving and floating shrouds mocking spirits were plucking at them and setting them into their gentle motions gleams of light that dance over the bog lured you in and once caught in these veils after veils of mystery madness would seize you and you would wildly dash here and there in a vain attempt at regaining your freedom and when exhausted at last you broke down and huddled together on the ground the werewolf would come ghostly himself and huge and airy and weird his body woven of mist and in the fog's stately and leisurely way he would kneel down on your chest slowly crushing you beneath his exceeding weight and bending and straightening bending and stretching slowly slowly down came his head to your throat and then he would lie and not stir until morning and suck and after few or many days people would find you dead in the woods a victim of fog and mist a rumbling sound made me sit up at last we were crossing over the twelve-mile bridge in spite of my dreaming i was keeping my eyes on the lookout for any sign of a landmark but this was the only one i had known so far and it came through the ear not the eye i promptly looked back and up to where the cottonwoods must be but no sign of high weeping trees no rustling of fall dry leaves not even a deeper black in the black betrayed their presence well never before had i failed to see some light to hear some sound around the house of the moneyed type or those of the half-way farms surely somehow i should be aware of their presence when i got there some sign some landmark would tell me how far i had gone the horses were trotting along steaming through the brewing fog i had become all ear even though my buggy was silent and though the road was coated with a thin film of soft clay mud i could distinctly hear by the muffled thud of the horses hoofs on the ground that they were running over a grade that confirmed my bearings. I had no longer a moment's doubt or anxiety over my drive. The grade was left behind. The rut-road started again, was passed and outrun. So now I was close to the three-farm cluster. I listened intently for the horse's thump. Yes, there was that muffled hoof-beat again, i was on the last grade that led to the angling road across the corner of the marsh truly this was very much like lying down in the sleeping-car of an overland train you recline and act as if nothing unusual were going on and meanwhile a force that has something irresistible about it and is indeed largely beyond your control wafts you over mile after mile of fabled distance now and then the rumble of car on rail will stop the quiet awakens you lights flash their piercing darts a voice calls out it is a well-known stop on your journey and then the rumbling resumes you doze again to be awakened again and so on and when you get up in the morning there she lies the goal of your dreams the resplendent city my goal was my home and mildly startling at least one such midnightly awakening came i had kept peering about for a landmark a light somewhere here in those farmhouses which i saw with my mind's eye People were sitting around their fireside, chatting or reading. Lamps shed their homely light. Roof and wall kept the fog-spook securely out. Nothing as comfortable then as to listen to stories of being lost on the marsh, or to tell them. But between those people and myself the curtain had fallen no sign of their presence no faintest gleam of their light and warmth they did not know of the stranger passing outside his whole being i yearn with a desire for wife and child i listened intently no sound of man or beast no soughing of wind in stems or rustling of the very last leaves that were now fast falling and then the startling neighing of Dan, my horse. This was the third trip he made with me, and I might have known and expected it, but it always came as a surprise. Whenever we passed that second farm, he stopped, and raising his head, with a sideways motion, neighed a loud and piercing call. And now he had stopped and done it again. He knew where we were. I lowered my whip and patted his rump how did he know and why did he do it was there a horse on this farmstead which he had known in former life or was it a man or did he merely feel that it was about time to put in for the night i inquired later on but failed to discover any reason for his behavior now came that angling road past the white range line house i relied on the horses entirely this range line house was inhabited now a settler was putting in winter residence so that he might not lose his claim he had taken down the clapboards that closed the windows and always had i so far seen a light in the house it seemed to me that in this corner of the marsh the fog was less dense than it had been farther south And the horses, once started, were swinging along, though in a leisurely way, yet without hesitation. Another half-hour passed. Once at a bend in the trail the rays from the powerful tractor searchlight, sweeping sideways past the horses, struck a wetly glistening grayish stone to the right of the road. I knew that stone. Yes, surely the fog must be thinning or I could not have seen it. I could now also dimly make out the horses' heads as they nodded up and down. And then, like a phantom way up in the mist, I made out a blacker black in the black, the majestic poplars north of the range-line house. Not that I could really see them or pick out the slightest detail, no but it seemed to my searching eyes as if there was a quiet pool in the slow flow of the fog as the water in a slow-flowing stream will come to rest when it strikes the stems of a willow submerged at its margin i was trying even at the time to decide how much of what i seemed to divine rather than to perceive was imagination and how much reality and i was just about ready to contend that i also saw to the north something like the faintest possible suggestion of an eddy such as would form in the flowing water below a pillar or a rock when i was rudely shaken up and jolted trap trap i heard the horse's feet on the culvert crash and peter went stumbling down then a violent lurch of the buggy i holding on Peter rallied, and then before I had time to get a firmer grasp on the lines, both horses bolted again. It took me some time to realize what had happened. It was the culvert, of course. It had broken down, and lucky I was that the ditch underneath was shallow. Only much later, when reflecting upon the incident, did I see that this accident was really the best verification of what I was nearly inclined to regard as the product of my imagination. The trees must indeed have stood where I had seemed to see that quiet reach in the fog and that eddy. We tore along. I spoke to the horses, and quietly and evenly pulled at the lines. I think it must have been several minutes before I had them under control again. And then, in this night of weird things, the weirdest sight of them all showed ahead. I was just beginning to wonder whether after all we had not lost the road again, when the faintest of all faint glimmers began to define itself somewhere in front. And—was I right? Yes, a small, thin voice came out of the fog that incessantly floated into my cone of light, and was left behind in eddies. What did it mean? The glimmer was now defining itself more clearly. Somewhere, not very far ahead and slightly to the left, a globe of the faintest iridescent luminosity seemed suspended in the brewing and waving mist. The horses turned at right angles onto the bridge, the glimmer swinging round to the other side of the buggy their hoofs struck wood and both beasts snorted and stopped in a flash a thought came i had just broken through a culvert the bridge too must have broken down and somebody had put a light there to warn the chance traveler who might stray along on a night like this i was on the point of getting out of my wraps when a thinner wave in the mist permitted me to see the flames of three lanterns hung to the side rails of the bridge and that very moment a thin piping voice came out of the darkness beyond daddy is that you i did not know the child's voice but i sang out as cheerily as i could i am a daddy all right but i am afraid not yours is the bridge broken down anything wrong no sir the answer came nothing wrong so i pulled up to the lanterns and there i saw dimly enough god wot a small ten-year-old boy standing and shivering by the signal which he had rigged up he was barefooted and bareheaded in shirt and torn knee trousers i pointed to the lanterns with my whip what's the meaning of this my boy I asked in as friendly a voice as i could muster daddy went to town this morning he said rather haltingly and he must have got caught in the fog we were afraid he might not find the bridge well cheer up son i said he is not the only one as you see his horses will know the road where did he go the boy named the town it was to the west not half the distance away that i had come don't worry i said i don't think he has started out at all the fog caught me about sixteen miles south of here it's nine o'clock now if he had started before the fog got there he would be here by now i sat and thought for a moment should i say anything about the broken culvert which way would your daddy come along the creek or across the marsh along the creek all right then no use in saying anything further well as i said i sang out and clicked my tongue to the horses don't worry better go home he will come to-morrow i guess so replied the boy the moment i lost sight of him and the lanterns i made the turn to the southeast and walked my horses here where the trail wound along through the chasm of the bush the light from my cone would over the horses backs strike twigs and leaves now and then everything seemed to drip and to weep all nature was weeping i walked the horses for ten minutes more then i stopped it must have been just at the point where the grade began but i do not know for sure i fumbled a long while for my shoes but at last i found them and put them on over my dry woolens when i had shaken myself out of my robes i jumped to the ground there was here too a film of mud on top but otherwise the road was firm enough i quickly threw the blankets over the horses backs dropped the traces took the bits out of their mouths and slipped the feed-bags over their heads i looked at my watch for it was my custom to let them eat for just ten minutes then to hook them up again and walk them for another ten before trotting i had found that that refreshed them enough to make the remainder of the trip in excellent shape while i was waiting i stood between the wheels of the buggy leaning against the box and staring into the light It was with something akin to a start that I realized the direction from which the fog rolled by. It came from the south. I had, of course, seen that already, but it had not so far entered my consciousness as a definite observation. It was this fact that later set me to thinking about the origin of the fog, along the lines which I have indicated above again i marveled at the density of the mist which somehow seemed greater while we were standing than while we were driving i had repeatedly been in the clouds on mountainsides but they seemed light and thin as compared with this finland northern sweden canada no other country which i knew had anything resembling it the famous london fogs are different altogether these mists like the mist pools need the swamp as their mother i suppose and the ice-cool summer night for their nurse the time was up i quickly did what had to be done and five minutes later we were on the road again i watched the horses for a while and suddenly I thought once more of that fleeting impression of an eddy in the lee of the poplar bluff at the white range-line house. It was on the north side of the trees if it was there at all. The significance of the fact had escaped me at the time. It again confirmed my observation of the flow of the fog in both directions. It came from a common center and still there was no breath of air i had no doubt any longer it was not the air that pushed the fog the floating bubbles the infinitesimally small ones as well as those that were quite perceptible simply displaced the lighter atmosphere i wondered what kept these bubbles apart some repellent force with which they were charged Something, at any rate, must be preventing them from coalescing into rain. Maybe it was merely the perfect evenness of their flow, for they gathered thickly enough on the twigs, and the few dried leaves, on any obstacles in their way. And again I thought of the fact that the mist had seemed thinner when I came out on the marsh. This double flow explained it, of course there were denser and less dense waves in it like veils hung up one behind the other so long as i went in a direction opposite to its flow i had to look through sheet after sheet of the denser waves later i could every now and then look along a plane of lesser density it was dan who found the turn off the grade into the bushy glades I could see distinctly how he pushed peter over here where again the road was winding and where the light therefore once more frequently struck the twigs and boughs as they floated into my cone of luminosity to disappear again behind a new impression thrust itself upon me i call it an impression not an observation it is very hard to say what was reality what fancy on a night like that in spite of its air of unreality of improbability even it has stayed with me as one of my strongest visions i nearly hesitate to put it in writing these boughs and twigs were like fingers held into a stream that carried loose algae arresting them in their gliding motion Or, again, those wisps of mist were like gossamers as they floated along, and they would bend and fold over on the boughs before they tore, and where they broke they seemed, like comets, to trail a thinner tail of themselves behind. There was tenacity in them, a certain consistency which made them appear as if woven of different things from air and mere moisture i have often doubted my memory here and yet i have my very definite notes and besides there is the picture in my mind in spite of my own uncertainty i can assure you that this is only one quarter a poem woven of impressions the other three quarters are reality but while i am trying to set down facts I am also trying to render moods and images begot by them." We went on for an hour, and it lengthened out into two. No twigs and boughs any longer, at last, but where I was I knew not. Much as I listened I could not make out any difference in the tramp of the horses now i looked down over the back of my buggy seat and i seemed to see the yellow or brownish clay of a grade i went on rather thoughtlessly then about eleven o'clock i noticed that the road was rough i had long since as i said given myself over to the horses but now i grew nervous no doubt unless we had entirely strayed from our road we were by this time riding the last dam for no other trail over which we went was quite so rough but then i should have heard the rumble on the bridge and i felt convinced that i had not it shows to what an extent a man may be hypnotized into insensibility by a constant sameness of view that i was mistaken if we were on the dam, and missed the turn, at the end of it, on to the correction line, we should infallibly go down from the grate on to Muskeg ground, for there was a gap in the dam. At that place I had seen a horse disappear, and many a cow had ended there in the deadly struggle against the downward suck of the swamp. I pulled the horses back to a walk, and we went on for another half-hour i was by this time sitting on the left-hand side bicycle lantern in my left hand and bending over as far as i could to the left trying with arm outstretched to reach the ground with my light the lantern at the back of the buggy was useless for this here and there the drop-laden glistening tops of the taller grasses and weeds would float into this auxiliary cone of light but that was all Then no weeds appeared any longer, so I must be on the last half-mile of the dam, the only piece of it that was bare, and CAUTION EXTREME was the word. I made up my mind to go on riding for another five minutes and timed myself, for there was hardly enough room for a team and a walking man besides. When the time was up I pulled in and got out. I took the lines short, laid my right hand on Peter's back, and proceeded. The bicycle lantern was hanging down from my left, and showed plainly the clayey gravel of the dam, and so I walked on for maybe ten minutes. Suddenly I became again aware of a glimmer to the left, and the very next moment a lantern shot out of the mist, held high by an arm wrapped in white a shivering woman tall young with gleaming eyes dressed in a linen house-dress an apron flung over breast and shoulders gasped out two words you came have you been standing here and waiting i asked no no i just could not bear it any longer something told me he's at the culvert now and if i do not run he will go down into the swamp there was something of a catch in the voice i did not reply i swung the horses around and crossed the culvert that bridges the master ditch and while we were walking up to the yard had my drive been anything brave anything at all deserving of the slightest reward had it not in itself been a thing of beauty not to be missed by selfish me Surely the touch of that arm, as we went, would have been more than enough to reward even the most chivalrous deeds of yore. End of section three.